Hello and welcome to this episode of the Catnaps podcast. With me, Jeremy, as a member of the public, Christy Sanderson, the principal investigator, and Kiriara Lombardo, the key research colleague that keeps things moving day to day. Poor sleep and fatigue are common in acute and emergency healthcare staff, and the COVID-19 pandemic has left many staff stressed and exhausted. And this project will explore how fatigue can be managed in the NHS ambulance workforce and the best ways staff can be helped to sleep better. CatNaps is an NIHR-funded study looking to produce an Ambulance Trust National Fatigue Risk Management System that is acceptable and feasible to improve safety for patients and staff. And the purpose of this series of podcasts is to share with the listeners news of the progression of the study and hopefully provide an interesting discussion worthy of your time listening. Christy, since the last podcast, has the smouldering heap of thoughts combusted into an inferno such that you could share? It's a blazing fire at the moment, oh. um, Jeremy. So, yeah, it's been a um, great past week. We've started to um, collate our annual report of how we have been communicating the findings of our study and engaging with all the different sorts of people who might be interested in a study about fatigue and sleep um, in an NHS workforce. So this is a really important part of what we do. We are funded by public money, so we are absolutely required at various points in the life of a study to get the message out about what we're finding, how the research is progressing. Um, and we have a formal time of the year where we report on that in that we write kind of a, um, a, a list of all the sorts of activities we've done um, and any outputs we might do. So something like uh, doing a podcast is absolutely fantastic for our reporting because this is a, is a really nice way to reach a broad and different audience to understand what our research is about, but also about the research process more broadly. So this is a really fun time of the year where we get to compile all the talks we've done, the conferences we've been to, the way we've got our message out, um, any kind of other reporting we've been doing. So it's a really nice time to sort of reflect back on on what's been going on and, and who we've been talking to with our message. Is part of the people that you're funding back to the funder? Yes. Definitely. <coughs> so, yeah, we also have... Um, important reporting mechanisms back to the National Institute for Health and Care Research who have funded us so that they can kind of judge our progress, see where we're at, how we faced any challenges we had because all studies face challenges at some point. Um, so it's important to keep them informed as well about our progress. Mm. Yeah, well, there we go. At what point, Chrissy, did you invite Kiara to take part in the study, help our listeners understand Kiara's role and skills and how she came to be recruited? So Kiara's fulfilling a really key role of our study. So shortly after we started the study, we had identified a post that we wanted an experienced researcher who had experience in mental health because um, this project, while it's fatigue and sleep, is sort of couched within kind of the staff wellbeing space um, and also to help us with the day-to-day -day running of the study, which is actually quite a sophisticated skill set to deliver research because it's managing a lot of moving parts at the same time, competing timelines. Um, there's there's a lot going on in this role. So this is a role we, we advertise for um, and we were very, very lucky to get Kiara who has a really interesting 
skill mix and, and set of sort of experiences that matched really well with this project. I mean, Chiara will tell us more about herself, but from my point of view and her value add to the study, she's an organisational psychologist for a start, so she understands the complexity of doing research with busy organisations that have competing demands. She had done some research in what we call public mental health, which is thinking broadly about the determinants of someone's mental health and wellbeing, and sleep is one of the key determinants of someone's mental health and wellbeing. And Chiara had recently done some work on um, a public health campaign for the Mental Health Foundation around sleep and good sleep quality. So Kiara had this really nice school mix of organisational research and understanding, but also um, how you communicate about the importance of good sleep with the general public. So these were two really fantastic things, as well as Kiara being a very experienced mental health researcher. So um, it was, you know, a really great boost to the study um, to be able to attract someone like Kiara to the study. Where did you... Uh, recruit Kiara from where she was performing. So Kiara, if I'm remembering correctly, still had a post at University of Cambridge and was working at Mental Health Foundation. Exactly, correct. Yeah, good. Um, so yeah, um, really incredible skill set, um, and we were able to um, poach Kiara to move a little bit uh, in the easterly direction. Good heavens above! <laughs> Turning that to Kiara, uh, what were you doing before Christy approached you to help with study? Yeah, so Christy has already mentioned that I was working for the Mental Health Foundation in the University of Cambridge, and I have, I'm a research um, mental health scientist, and I have worked across the academia, the voluntary sector, and the NHS. And um, I'm an in, interest in prevention of uh, mental health um, issues and uh, promotion of good mental health uh, role. So my studies, my um, research projects all lie around that area of promotion and prevention. When did you become interested in mental health? Was it, was it, has it always been an interest um, of yours or was it something that developed over time? No, I think <coughs> I've always been interested in mental health. I did uh, my PhD in psychology um, and and then I followed up uh, with uh, research projects around uh, mental health, well-being of staff, and um, safety, patient safety. Uh, so yes, has always been one of my key interests, looking at the angle of prevention and looking how we can improve systems um, in the NHS, and then I've done some studies in the community uh, to help people to have uh, better mental health. What was your PhD? Um, my PhD was looking at the role that emotions play in learning and transferring training in a professional setting. Golly. Yeah. In the NHS, professional setting, I mean in the NHS. So, what, 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 was, in, <laughs> what, what was involved in doing that PhD? Because it, it sounds like a fascinating Yeah, question. I was in, at the time, uh, sounds like a long time ago, um, I was living in the Nordist, I was in Durham, and I was doing an evaluation project of psychosocial interventions. 
And uh, I thought there must be more into um, learning and transferring training. There is something like inside the individuals. So if we identify what are those factors, we can improve the system, we can Im improve learning and the way that training is delivered. And for example, things like anxiety um, play quite a big role in, in learning and in professional supervision, in clinical supervision. So I was looking at into the details of that. So the, for example, a good level of anxiety um, usually helps to absorb new concepts and um, high levels of anxiety are usually are not conductive to good performance. And that's interesting because I think most people would, would imagine that anxiety is a negative thing. But you say you're, you're saying that there is there are positive things about anxiety. Um, I think too much um, mm. of anxiety. Yes, it's it's a negative thing. But anxiety it's um, one emotions that um, prepares our body to action. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, if we have that optimal level of concentration of being ready uh, to respond. Uh, then that can help. So is it possible that some people could have too little anxiety in their life to be good to them? Uh, I don't think that too little anxiety. I think it's, um, we're not here talking about anxiety in clinical terms, of no, course. No. Yeah, just want to specify that. Uh, but I think the right level of arousal um, can help. Oh, good heavens above. I wish I had more time to ask more questions. Yeah. Um, I don't want to ask about the team. That studies need a variety of skills, but not mm -hmm. all studies need the same skills. So how, Chrissy, did you go about identifying the skills you needed to bring on and how did you find the right people? It's always a really important part in designing research to think about um, being really clear on what you're trying to do and... What are the people you need to bring around you? Because one of the great things about research and about leading research is I need to have enough knowledge to have an oversight across the whole area, but I'm not going to be expert in everything. Um, so I'm not a paramedic, so I need people with paramedic science experience. Um, I'm not uh, come from a background in fatigue management or safety, so I needed to bring in some people who have that skill set. Um, I did have some experience in public mental health, so kind of thinking about those broad determinants of health um, and also then thinking about what are the specific methodologies you're going to employ. So we're doing sort of interviews and what we call ethnographic observations. So it's thinking about both the content area and the sorts of data collection methods that you're interested in and then the skill sets to bring that all together in a coherent story in terms of analysis. So it's about mapping out the bits of work thinking about what I've already done and what I can bring and just being very honest that I, I don't have all the skills myself so I need to compile a team that will help complement what I know. Some of our listeners might not understand the term public mental health. What is the corollary of public mental health? Private mental health? <laughs> yes, <laughs> or we, we won't go down the public-private <laughs> path. So if we think about a term like health promotion – that's things like we know it is good to do some physical exercise. We know it is good to eat balanced, nutritious diet. We know it is good to get a good night's sleep, whatever the good hours of sleep is for you. 
we can apply all of these kind of public health principles to thinking about mental health. So we know, for example, all of those things I've mentioned can help improve mental health, but it's also thinking about people in context. So what is it about the way people live and work, conduct their lives that could increase their chances of having better mental health or could actually impact on their mental health? So we're thinking holistically about all the things that can impact on somebody's risk of developing a mental health disorder or just enjoying good well-being, thriving in their existence. So public mental health is a term where we like to think about people um, holistically in terms of their entire life and what we can help put in place and help them to develop the skills and to access um, whatever it is that keeps them well and happy. It all makes wonderful sense. Uh, coming back to Chiara, um, in this study you are a senior research associate. So what does that actually mean? So <coughs> it means that I'm the study manager, so I manage the day-to-day -day, uh, development of the project. And we have different aspects and different phases of the project, uh, which is also what I enjoyed because my work varies uh, a lot. Um, and so, yes, I keep like things running on a day-to-day -day basis uh, in terms of liaising with uh, some of our stakeholders in organising recruiting, doing data collection, um, analysis and plan reporting and all that sort of stuff. Did you imagine when you were at school that you'd be doing this? <laughs> Never. <laughs> <laughs> what... In your experience in public mental health, tell me a bit more about your role and what it is that you've done. So I've done um, a fellowship in public mental health at the University of East London in parallel with my role at the Mental Health Foundation. Uh, the Mental Health Foundation is a volunteer organisation which is highly focused on, on prevention of mental health and promoting good mental health. And I worked at different projects, small and large. Um, some of the large projects, again, were looking at um, service development in the NHS and identifying uh, ideal fr leadership frameworks, for example, that could um, promote staff well-being and patient safety um, uh, outcomes. And um, I've done like smaller projects with, within the communities, uh, the most at risk communities to identify those factors that would help uh, people thrive. And we love be looking at uh, what could work you know, uh, in education, uh, in schools, in families, um, in the workplace. And I've done also large-scale projects, um, as for example, in collaboration with the University of Cambridge on the impact of the pandemic of COVID in the mental health of the nation. So, for example, identify who are the people most at risk and what can we advise to policymakers and how we can translate uh, what people have been telling us in the study into uh, practical uh, tips and suggestions. What are the characteristics of an at-risk population? Um, well, there isn't one at-risk population. We have many population that are at risk. 
Uh, I think isolation, uh, it's um, one risk. Uh, lack of uh, targeted support, of specific support for that population. Uh, stigma, uh, it's, uh, it's a big one in mental health and in public mental health. <clears throat> one of our biggest fights, it's uh, against uh, stigma in how people perceived other groups in how uh, people who live with mental health um, problems are defined, labelled, and even the language that we use, our day-to-day -day language. So this is like a big um, focus in public mental health. John, there's a lot, there's a lot that needs to be done, I'd imagine. Yeah, definitely. It ever ends. And uh, public mental health is a relatively uh, new discipline uh, because everyone has heard, usually hears about public mental health and prevention, uh, but it's less specific. People know a little less uh, about public mental health and what can be done to prevent uh, mental health um, uh, conditions. Do you think there's still a fear amongst the general population about mental health the way that years ago there would be a fear about, say, for example, leprosy? Or uh, I think there is still little knowledge uh, around uh, mental health, uh, although a lot of awareness and campaigns have been done. Uh, and I think that there is still little knowledge and people tend to define, to use like words, uh, some of the words like, oh, you're depressed or you're anxiety or you're OCD, are sometimes negative terms. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that's what I mean when I say that language is important, how we use our language around uh, mental health. Um, yes, so to answer your question, I think there is uh, a bit of fear but um, there needs a bit of lack of education around uh, mental health. And I'm quite glad to see that in some schools now that the education is starting, in, is taking place. Uh, I'm an old man. As you can well see, I am an old man. But when I was young, when I was a child, <coughs> there, was a, there was a sense amongst uh, some people that to mental, mental illness is contagious. Do you think that's gone, that sense? I hope so. <laughs> You're also yeah. a chartered psychologist. So how does a chartered psychologist differ from a clinical psychologist or any other psychologist? Um, it basically means that I'm an academic psychologist. So I do a lot of research um, around like different psychology area and my area of expertise is occupational psychology. I've got like an MSc in occupational psychology, uh, which uh, means that I'm interested in the well-being of staff, on how we can improve organisations and the system, and how these uh, can have an effect, uh, well, on the well-being of employees, uh, but also on on clients, on the final um, in, in in the context of NHS, uh, on patient safety and patient outcome. So uh, it's a holistic uh, approach. So looking how we can improve the organizations, how we can improve well-being, and then how we can all benefit um, of those improvements. 
I used to work in the NHS as a staff nurse and I have witnessed bullying on hospital wards. How do you perceive that the culture of the, the, the reasons why become, people become mentally ill, depressed and strained, how do, how do those strategies, how can those strategies be better adopted by staff and bullying, the bullying culture is challenged? Um, so bullying happens in a context, so it is in, in a specific culture. Um, so I don't know how much it has changed, uh, but uh, definitely that there needs to be more support uh, for people to speak up. And also uh, something that is, is quite recurrent, it's about uh, training managers in supporting individuals. And as I mentioned before, um, to talk about stigma, to um, reduce the stigma around um, mental health or any emotional issues. Uh, so to normalize uh, that so people can speak up um, and feel supported. Thank you. Um, what do you perceive to be the impact of poor sleep as a psychologist upon working shifts? Well, it's the usual suspects, so yeah, a lower morale, uh, absenteeism and increase of sickness because of mental health uh, issues and lower engagement with the organisation and yeah, impact on, on clinical impact, impact on patients and then on, on performance and um, impact as well outside work. So in the um, family and friends relationships, so it, it is quite important and it has quite a big impact. Uh, fatigue is very much something like a stone in a pond yeah. whereby the ripples go out and they affect colleagues. They if somebody's fatigued, their behaviour affects other people in the, in yeah. immediately around them and also the family and this, that, and the other. Um, do you think that people sort of spend enough time asking for help or do you think that they are reluctant to seek help? Uh, I think there is still some reluctancy um, in asking for, for help. Well, why there is like a, a clear um, link uh, between um, fatigue, lack of sleep and, mental, and poor mental health. Uh, but I think there, is, there needs more education in terms of um, uh, teaching people how to recognise those symptoms. And, uh, but also, uh, we need to have a system in place uh, for those people to seek help and find the right solutions. So, yes, we need to um, educate people uh, in recognising and understanding their bodies and their um, fatigue issues, but also we need to be able to provide some solutions. So answer the so what question, like I'm fatigued, and then what, what do I do with that? Yes, I need to rest more, but I'm working shifts. How do I manage that? Mm. This study, I'm sure, is going to go a long way. Would employers make cost savings, do you think, by paying attention more to the psychology of their employees? Or, or hasn't there been enough work done on this yet? Uh, I think there is some work 
done, but um, I think that the antecedent factor of um, psychological impact um, don't necessarily lie on the, indivi on the individuals, uh, but the organizations and have got like a big responsibility as on that, on identifying those issues, um, uh, problematic areas and acting upon them. Um, so I'm into the mental health world, so I've seen like campaigns and mental health campaigns coming one after the other, and I've been involved um, in some big national, in delivering some big national mental health campaigns. And usually I'm always amazed on how much interest we have received from the um, public, the general public and from policymakers. Uh, so, w which is good, uh, but definitely um, something needs to, something more needs to be done. Um, the COVID the pandemic was a big shake up uh, because I think the um, um, NHS staff well-being was um, under the spotlights. We were talking a lot about how staff, uh, NHS staff, were fatigued. And uh, I think some well-being hubs were created in the NHS. Um, and that's like a campaign that now the BPS, the British Psychological Society, is advocating for because those well-being hubs uh, are going to be, there, is, there are no more fundings uh, for those. So what uh, needs to be done, it's like long-term strategies, long-term investment, so research in terms of evaluation, what, what is working um, in this context and what can we do more and how can we help uh, people to, um, how can we support people, their well-being? That leads nicely into my next question. Um, <clears throat> if, if you could sponsor a research question, what would that be? Well, that's like the $1 million question to me <laughs> because like I would love to have a magic wand and uh, bring all the NHS priorities together and to help um, the system to achieve the outcomes. So I would love to look at, you know, how we can promote well-being of uh, staff the, and then announce patient safety and outcomes, uh, identify those ideal leadership frameworks and implement effective training. I think these are like the key ingredients uh, that um, might create a successful intervention or research. Uh, I could ask, uh, could answer a few questions. I would look forward very much to learning what, how you, what, what research more you can come up with. Yeah. In your specialist field, do you have any heroes? Um, I've got a hero in mental health um, who is an Italian psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. um, he's called um, Franco Basaglia and he was a pioneer in psychiatric and he founded a movement called um, democratic psychiatric and he was i think the first person who abolished asylums and i think back in the 70s um so actually italy was the first country uh to shut down the asylums and um 
promote, uh, well, fight stigma around mental health and mental health patients, unlock the ward's doors, remove the straight jackets, and doctors uh, took off their white coats and they were mixing with patients and uh, patients were invited to go into the community and mix with other people. So a lot of that stigma um, was removed. And I think it's when it started, when we started to um, level mental health uh, as um, physical health, when we started um, to try to fill the gap and the perceptions of mental health. It sounds very influential and aspiring. Is it, how, much, how, how much has he contributed to your own thinking? Um, uh, quite, quite a lot, I think, uh, because I'm a great believer of, um, of enhancing life in the community and um, uh, solving the issues in the communities and people should uh, live in the community as, as much as possible and we should create well and safe uh, places for everyone to live. Mm. Where are, are you now, Chiara? Uh, what does your working day tomorrow look like? Um, so I'm quite busy at the moment with recruitment um, and I'm interviewing participants, uh, which is an exciting part of the project when we can hear firsthand what people have to say us. To us, and then uh, so that's I'm immersed in in that at the moment, um, in talking to to different people of from the study. In these interviews, are you are, are you hearing things that you didn't expect to hear? Um, yes, some of the things are expected. Expected. Um, there are like a few uh, new things, and yeah, I will expect to hear something new as well. Yeah. Got you. I couldn't help noticing, and the same happened with uh, when I was interviewing uh, Christy, that your voice. Your voice has a distinct Italian lift, so can you tell us a bit more about that? How did a, an Italian lady come to work yeah. in Norfolk? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I should have apologised about my Italian English. Oh, no, don't, don't, don't <laughs> apologise. Your, your English is absolutely Perfect, and your 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 Italian lilt is beautiful. Yeah, very generous, very good. Thank you. Um, I moved in this country uh, when I did my PhD a while ago, and uh, I wasn't planning to stay here for long. But uh, you know, things happen in life. I got settled, got a job, and I enjoyed living here. And uh, for the first part of my uh, English life, I lived in the northeast of England. So I mentioned I've done my PhD in Durham, then Newcastle. Um, and then we moved here as a family. Uh, I'm based in Cambridge and I love it. I really like it. So it's good. Uh, it's nice to come back uh, to Italy uh, to re-energize a couple of times per year. Uh, so it feels like I've got Two homes now, two places that I can call home. That's really lovely. That's really. Lo Are there any questions I haven't asked? You wish I had. Um, actually, we had a quite an in-depth discussion, Jeremy. So nothing I can think of. Marvelous, marvelous. Christy, what thoughts do you have? <clears throat> I was just reflecting on that concept of home, because um, you know, as an as an expat myself, when. 
when I'm in the, in the UK and I'm telling people um, I'm going to Australia, I say I'm going home. When I'm in Australia and I'm going back to the UK, I tell them I'm going home. <laughs> and it's only just struck me that that's what I do. <laughs> so I think it's, it's, a, it's, a lo- it's a lovely concept. So, no, I think um, listening to kind of Kiara and reflecting on um, the path that she's come to this study, it's just kind of really reinforcing to me the importance of keeping our eye on what we call the promotion and prevention space because we don't want to wait till people are in um, crisis be- we don't want to wait till people have reached such a point of sleep disruption or ongoing sort of um, more akin to kind of like a chronic fatigue space that they've left it so long that when they reach out for help, they're in a much worse place than they otherwise would have been. So keeping our focus on that prevention space and how can we stop these problems emerging in the first place or how can we catch them early? How can we make sure we've got clear pathways for people to ask for help. I think we have to keep that front and centre of our minds because it's a really, really important part of what we're trying to do. Spot on. Bonza. Well, this has been really interesting, Gara and Chrissy. Thank you very much for this. But as our typewriter of time runs out of ribbon and the photocopier of destiny runs out of paper, I notice our time is now up. The next podcast, we will be interviewing another team member and learning how the study is making progress. So if anyone listening wishes to know more about the study, details can be found on the NIHR Applied Research Collaboration website and on the UEA website. But if you just Google CatNap Study Christy Sanderson, you will find it. Thank you all for listening and goodbye. <laughs>